Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine on SAFM, leading the conversation. If destroying all the maps known would erase all the boundaries from the face of this earth, I would say, let us make a bonfire to reclaim and sing the human person. Refugee is an ominous load even for a child to carry. For some children, words like home could not carry any possible meaning. But displaced, border, refugee, must carry dimensions of brutality and terror past the most hideous nightmare anyone could experience or imagine. Empty their young eyes, deprived of a vision of any future they should have been entitled to since they did not choose to be born where and when they were. Empty their young bellies, extended and rounded by malnutrition and growling like the well-fed dogs of some with pretensions to concerns about human rights violations. Can you see them now stumble from nowhere to nowhere between nothing and nothing. Consider the premature daily death of their young dreams. What staggering memories frighten and abort the hope that should have been an indelible inscription in their young eyes. Perhaps I should just borrow the rememberer's voice again while I can and say to have a home is not a favor. That is the voice of the late uh, South African National Poet Laureate, Professor Kiorapetzi Khosetile, and that's a speech he gave at the Literature Week Poetry Festival in Berlin in Germany in 2009 and this begins our feature into his life story. That and more after this. At SFM Radio and at Pimelo Mutile on Twitter. We are looking into the life of South African National Poet Laureate uh, Professor Giorapetzi Khosetzile who would have turned 82 this past Saturday so we wish him happy birthday but we are going to look into a little piece a slice of his life with uh, Mr. Paolo Jordan who used to be the former uh, Minister of Arts and Culture as well as an author and worked very very closely with uh, Brawili as he was fondly known thank you very much Mr. Jordan for, for joining us this afternoon welcome to the show Good afternoon. How do you remember Brawili? Well, I knew him in uh, maybe three or four dimensions. 
Uh, as a friend, personal friend, personal friend. Yes. Uh, as a political associate and a comrade, as an artist, and then also as my advisor as a minister. Yes. So, uh, um, yeah, in all those roles, I found him to be uh, a fascinating, creative, and uh, a very um, inspiring human being. Um, we met while we were in exile in the United States in the early 60s and uh, struck up a very firm friendship from those days um, until his passing. Yes. What was his relationship with Eskim Patlele? Pardon? What was his relationship with Eskim Patlele? His relationship with Eskia Patlele? Oh, with Eskia. Oh, oh, Professor Hosea Tillis' relationship yes. with Patlele. Yes. Well, they've known each other yes. uh, in Johannesburg. Yes. Uh, as you know, um, Patlele was a teacher yes. in Orlando. Uh, and then, uh, yes, he was one of the first uh, teachers to be thrown out of his job for opposing uh, nationalist party policy. Hmm. That was in 1952. Hmm. And uh, subsequent to that, he then worked uh, for various publications in Johannesburg and then uh, left school and worked in West Africa. Yes. And then subsequently to that in the United States. Uh, Willie knew him from the days in Johannesburg uh, but I think uh, the relationship probably became stronger while they were in the United States. Uh, they were miles apart geographically because uh, we spent most of his time on the East Coast. And the Parcellas were in the Midwest. And in fact, no, not only in the Midwest, in the Rockies, uh, in Denver, Colorado, uh, which is sort of, yeah closer to California yes. and east to New York. So, there, yeah, uh, there was that relationship, but I wouldn't say it was a tight relationship. Mm. Mr. Jordan, when, when you were working with him in, in, in your office while you were the Minister of Arts and Culture, what was the one thing that you, yourself, as, as the two of you were, you, were you hoping to achieve? What was the one goal you wanted to achieve together? Well, <laughs> We had a whole program yes. that we wanted to achieve, yes. uh, but uh, uh, I would say key amongst uh, the um, objectives that we had was uh, the republication of the classics in the African languages, uh, which had disappeared from the bookshelves uh, and uh, were going to be lost forever. Uh, the regular publishing houses in South Africa were not interested in publishing in the African languages at all because they said there was no money in it. And uh, we had, therefore, to mobilize the National Library uh, to act in conjunction with uh, the original publishing houses where they still existed 
or to do it on its own if those oriental publishing houses had gone out of existence. And uh, we published, I think, uh, quite a number of titles in Tosa, in Sizulu, in Sisutu, Siswana. The languages, I think, that uh, lost out were languages like Shivenda, Shitsonga, and, uh, yeah, well, the Khoi Khoi languages are not much spoken anymore. But had they been, you know, had we had time, we would have done that as well. Hmm. Uh, in addition to that, the other project that we were pushing very, very hard was to recast the um, landscape, um, if you like, uh, public space in South Africa. Hmm. Uh, it's dominated by uh, statues and monuments that celebrate conquest, uh, colonialism, imperialism, racism, and oppression. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that we wanted to revisit very radically. Uh, it's very costly exercise, of course, because mm-hmm. uh, it means erecting structures. Mm-hmm. And that needs money. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, it also means contesting the existing monuments, statues, etc. And that, of course, can be politically explosive. <laughs> but but one one gets a feeling that uh, Brawili was always willing to have that contestation, and and it sounds to me like it is something that maybe you are saying should be gone into that contestation of ideas and contestation of that space. No, no, of course. Mm. We, we, we did contest a lot of that, uh, especially with respect to close uh, names. Mm. I think you'll remember the arguments we had about the renaming of uh, China's International Airport. Yes. Oh, our Tambo International Airport. Yes. Uh, you know, with silly nonsense yes. uh, being spoken and being done by cartoonists and other idiots. <laughs> uh, no, we did contest it. But the point is, you know, you have to choose those battles very carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, <clears throat> you don't, uh, <clears throat> you know, go into battle on, in a, on terrain that you're uncertain of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be certain of your terrain first. So we weren't going to go into that in a hurry much as we knew that was space that needed to be contested. Yes. What, what, you, what would you consider to be an ideal terrain? What would you consider to be the way to do this at, at this point in time? Well, for one thing, we need, we need representations of uh, the history of South Africa, which, uh, first of all, reflect the diversity of the society. Uh, if you came from uh, outer space and you arrived in South Africa looking at the statues and monuments, you'd think that the history of this, of, of this country began when the Europeans arrived and uh, that they're the only people who have any history in this country. Uh, in fact, you'd think that uh, the Africans uh, are the recent arrivals. You know, <laughs> the, the monuments uh, don't reflect our presence at all. Uh, as for the koi and the sand, uh, completely obliterated. 
So that is the one thing you'd have to address, make it just representative in the first instance. And then secondly, I think one would have to also then address the second dimension of that, which is the celebration of colonialism, conquest, and racism. Mm. Right? Uh, which would involve a whole, could involve a whole number of measures. Uh, you could go the radical route that uh, people have chosen in the United States, which is to bring them down. You could go another route, which is what has happened in many parts of Eastern Europe, which is to move them somewhere else, you know. Uh, and then uh, you could go the most radical route, which is to destroy them altogether, which but, is what happened to that statue in uh, Bristol. Yeah. But Mr. Jordan, what are the consequences of keeping the status, the status quo, as you've said? You know, we, we, you, when you arrive here, you, you'd swear that you are in a different continent. Um, mm. What are the consequences of what has resulted in how we've glorified colonialism and so on? What are the consequences of that? Well, you're distorting the story, aren't you? Yeah. And what you are saying is that these are good things. I mean, statues and monuments are erected to memorialize what we consider important events, what we consider great people, what we consider great deeds, what we consider great achievements, isn't it? You don't put up a statue to failure, right? You put up a statue to victory, Mm. to success, to something commendable. So if there's a statue of a person somewhere, it means that that person did things which we consider commendable. Now, if there's a statue of someone who is actually a racist murderer, uh, then you're saying racism and, 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 murder, and, and murdering are commendable actions. If you have a statue of someone who's an imperialist exploiter and slave driver and slave owner, you're saying those things are good. Your your response to those who say, well, you know, we should be careful not to erase those people, even though they were evil, they were racist and so on. Where should we place them then? As I say, you have, you have alternatives. Yes. Right? You can bring the statues down and throw them away and destroy them. That's what happened to the statue of the slave of one of the big slaves of Britain in Britain. In Bristol, they tore down the statue and threw it into the into the bay. Now, in Eastern Europe, where they repudiated a lot of their history, they've taken the statues down but put them somewhere else, stored them somewhere, uh, in a park or whatever, right? But not in a place in which they are figures of honor. You... Then there's the other alternative, yes. but, uh, uh, which is to, you know, to, well, this is what some people are suggesting, which is to contextualize them. Now, to contextualize them, <laughs> you, would, you would have to you'd have to rewrite everything that, that's at the base of the statue. Mm. If you take, for example, the statue of Louis Boerta, mm. Uh, which is in front of Parliament here in Cape Town. Uh, I think it reads, uh, farmer, statesman, soldier, uh, yeah. Mm, farmer, statesman, soldier, maybe prime minister or something, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Now, uh, that's one way of looking at new, new data. Uh, <coughs> the other way to look at him is the first uh, Prime Minister <coughs> of Racing South Africa at the <laughs> Union. Right. Uh, you could look also at his record uh, during the World War and before and after and just describe that. You know, and so on and so on. I mean, that's, there are all sorts of alternatives you could you, you, you could choose. But the point is that, as things stand, they are a misrepresentation mm-hmm. of the history of this country, the experience of this country, and uh, in many instances, uh, commend and give honor to people who don't deserve that status. Brawili was somebody who was very instrumental in documenting every moment of our change, social change, uh, whatever it is that we were going through as a society. Uh, he leaves a big gap behind. What were his thoughts just closer to his passing? Did he share many of those around the arts and, and how we are using the space as artists to vocalize or to express society's spaces? Well, when he was never a neutral artist, uh, he chose his side very early in life uh, that he was on the side of those struggling for a better world, for a free society, for democracy in South Africa, etc. And, uh, well, as far as those things were concerned, yeah, uh, he pursued them with a passion. Uh, in, in his life, and then also through his poetry. But he also recognized that, uh, you know, many of the things he aspired to had not yet been uh, realized, that uh, there were many shortcomings, and that uh, there were a whole number of deficits uh, in our society which still needed to be really urgently addressed. Uh, poverty being the most obvious one, and uh, related to that, of course, is uh, the growth of our economy and the direction our economy is going in. So uh, those are issues that are very close to his heart. Uh, but uh, as you know, you know he expressed himself in poetic terms most of the time, and uh, just like that. Uh, reading that you began the program with, uh, talking about the experience of exile mm. and, uh, you know, having the home. Uh, yeah, those were his feelings, his thoughts, and uh, insofar as we have not realized all those objectives, yeah, they were those deficits which he recognized. As a friend, what do you miss the most about him? Well, I would say, you know, one would say everything, isn't it? Mm. Uh, he was a very well-rounded human being. And uh, it's all the dimensions of him that one misses, in a way. I suppose, uh, yeah, he was a very raconteur as well, mm. with a brilliant sense of humor. And 
Yeah, I suppose that would be the dimension that one misses the most, that you could sit for hours and uh, serious uh, fun, bullshit, whatever you want to talk about, uh, as long as it was on the agenda, you know, and uh, it would be good, good company. Mr. Palajulan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for taking us down memory lane. Thank you. You're most welcome. That is uh, Mr. Paula Jordan, who is author and former Minister of Arts and Culture. And many of you may know that Professor Kiora Pizikhosizile used to be special advisor while he was the Minister of Arts and Culture back in the day. And uh, we are just uh, celebrating his 82nd birthday. And my next guest is Dr. Uhuru Palafala, who is an academic, has been busy with uh, writing a book on uh, Professor Kiora Pizikhosizile. We'll be talking to her and more after this. At SFM Radio and at Pimelo Mutile on Twitter. Dr. Uhuru Parafara is academic. She's an academic. She's a lecturer at the University of Stellenbosch. She's also been busy with the book um, honoring Professor Giorapezi Josizile. She joins me on the line. A very good afternoon, Dr. Parafala. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us this afternoon. Afternoon, Pimelo and your listeners. It's my great pleasure to join you in conversation. So you were listening to that conversation. Unfortunately, the line wasn't great. But how do you personally remember uh, Professor Akira Petsikhosizile? Um, I remember uh, just a titan of um, both literature and, and politics. Uh, one of our greatest um, poets. Uh, that we've ever produced as a country. But I also remember him for his strength of heart. He had such a big, big heart. If any of you have ever met him, you will know that he had a massive smile on his face and it was not, you know, put on. It wasn't plastered on. He had just this inner joy that he carried through even in his politics, even during the time of apartheid. This joy was uh, the one that came through, this love for community, this love for uh, for his people, the commitment to our freedom. This comes through in his poetry. So uh, when I say strength of heart, that's what I'm talking about, this joy that that was in him, that made him... um, committed and and resilient in his fight for his people's freedom. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more. Let me go quickly to Utsile Saku uh, with the very latest with, of headlines at 2.30. Good afternoon, Utsile. Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. It would have been Professor Giorapesi uh, William Khosizile's 82nd birthday as we celebrated. It would have been on Saturday. Uh, Dr. Uhuru Parafara is with us. She's a, an academic, a lecturer at the University of Stellenbosch. She's also been busy with a book to honor uh, Professor Giorapesi Khosizile. Thank you so much for staying with us. Um, you know, we were speaking a little bit earlier on about the importance of the work, the the poetic work that um, Date Khosizile uh, was busy with and how he contributed so much to the nation with the body of his work. He was at some point uh, sent on a mission by Oar Tambo to the UN. Do we know what that mission was about? 
Um, if you are talking about the 1963 um, UN speech that he wrote for Miriam Makeva, that is the one that I am aware of, which brought the apartheid struggle immediately after the Chapel massacre to the attention of uh, the international uh, media and the world at large. Mm. And, and that speaks, I suppose, to something that you've been uh, talking about a lot, his association with women, his, his highlighting of the works of women and how women have affected him in his work. Absolutely. This is what my book focuses on, how, uh, you know, he was raised by uh, his grandmother, Kukum Madikeledi, and his mother, Alikhovi, not unlike millions of South Africans at the time, where because of the migrant labor system, because of the mining industrial complex, a lot of the men were taken into the cities. uh, And this was, you know, uh, deliberate to break uh, the family system while simultaneously building a South African modernity. Uh, So a lot of people were brought up with their grandmothers and mothers, but what is so special about Khosisile is that he centers them in his work. So he places them front and center to his politics and cultural consciousness. He writes about how without his grandmother's teachings and his mother's teachings, he would literally not be the person that he was. He spoke about the two lessons that they instilled in the home, one of which was that, you know, uh, they are not allowed to speak Setswana in the household. Uh, and this will sound like a very simple and innocuous kind of rule, but we know that uh, there was a colonial kind of uh, erasure uh, mission uh, that wanted to erase the cultures and the languages of the people so they could assimilate into uh, British education and British culture. So uh, rejecting this, what I call the home invasion of the colonialists, Uh, in her home instilled a different kind of consciousness, a cultural consciousness uh, that made him read and love Setswana language and even adopt it in his work when he was in exile. Mm. This was very important because it rooted him within uh, the cultures of the people. Now, when he was traveling in exile, he had a similar kind of politics that is emerging from the likes of Ngugiwa Tiongo, Franz Fanon, Amilcar Cabral. And when he heard their politics on language and culture and colonial assimilation, he immediately associated them with the teachings of his grandmother, Mm. which tells us that even when his grandmother did not set a foot in the classroom does not mean that she did not have any knowledge. Mm. So it is actually imperative that um, he centers them in his politics because, like I said, even when this is the case, we know that women held community together during apartheid in the the onslaught of uh, divide and rule, in the onslaught of breaking families, but men go forth in their careers and become big politicians, big cultural figures, and never, ever mention the role of these women. Mm. Well, the you know, second... Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Go, go ahead, Uhuru. I was going to say that another lesson that Madi Keledi and Galukhube instilled in the home was that you can always tell the truth. Don't tell any lies 
tell the truth and we will support you. And this, again, it just seems like a rule that is so simple. But what it does is that it fostered such a total trust in himself and in the uh, ongoing support of these women in his life. And that gives you a kind of self-belief, a belief in yourself that was expressed in his ongoing commitment to a cause, lifelong commitment to sound values sustained throughout his life. Mm-hmm. I mean, even when he came back, uh, had, having been a lifetime member of the ANC and was now back in the country, when the ANC was, uh, was, was breaking much of its promises, he was the first to speak against them, you know? And this is the self-trust that I'm talking about mm-hmm. that he always carried through with him. And I, I argue that these were instilled in the home front. We know that he came across works of the likes of Richard Wright at a time when it was very, very difficult to get those works in South Africa. He he, mm-hmm. he, he went to the United States. Um, I want to know what influence he left in the U.S. We know what influenced him, but what kind of an influence was he in the U.S.? So Hosetile arrived in the U.S. at a time where African-Americans were hungry to make sense of their identity as African-Americans. So they had been, until that point, the one part of their their hyphenated identity. They had been Americans, and the America that they claim to be does not want them, literally uh, treating them like second-class citizens. So they were seeking to reclaim this African part of their hyphenated identity. And there in their midst uh, was Hosizile coming with this culture that I just spoke about, coming with this reverence of uh, of his own uh, people, their cultures, their customs. And uh, while they were in the midst of this, uh, uh, of this search, he was there to provide what can be seen as a representation of this continent or this identity that they sought. So, for instance, people like uh, Amiri Baraka, Ndozake Shange, they were uh, leaving behind the African-American names or the American names which they considered to be slave names, mm-hmm. and they were adopting African names. One of the uh, uh, political activists that Gloria House uh, called herself Gloria Hositi mm-hmm. uh, uh, after, after him, and uh, as we already know, the popular example of the last poets who read Hositile's poem and just found something completely uh, African, authentic, original about it, while also being contemporaneous with the politics of the time. So not African in the sense of mm. Egypt, Hotep, and all of that, you know, ancient kind of civilization. No, he was... Uh, because of his astute political acumen, he was contemporaneous with the politics. So they took his poetry and named themselves the last poets. Mm-hmm. Now, my book also explores his role as an, uh, an educator in the African-American universities. He taught at many, many universities. And again, this was uh, the late 60s when... Um, 
they had much like what we have uh, what we had in 2014 here in South Africa a call for the decolonization of uh, uh, curricula uh, the Asian uh, minority the African American minority the Latin American minority were all on strike demanding a curriculum that represents uh, uh, the demographic of the US uh, and you know this is when Africa uh, uh, departments like Black studies and African uh, American literature programs were being formed, and Josefina was right there teaching uh, African studies uh, at this university. So, for me, uh, as an educator, as somebody who goes into the classroom every year, year after year, uh, making an impact on impressionable minds, I can only imagine the thousands of students that uh, have passed through his tutelage and the amount, the impact that he has had on their work. Um, So the impact he has uh, stretches across the disciplines of education, of literature, of music, of politics. Dr. Huru Parafala, we're looking forward to that book. She's an academic as well as a lecturer at the University of Stellenbosch, currently busy with a book uh, that is going to chronicle some bits of Josizile uh, William Kirabeti Josizile's life. I mean, we, we cannot wait. It's set to be ready sometime next year. We, we keep our fingers crossed.